We're very fortunate to have as our speaker today Robert J. Norell, who has just written a just published biography of Booker T. Washington, the first life of this African-American leader to be published in a generation. By some coincidence, actually, it's available for sale in our museum shop. It is. And our speaker will be available after the lecture to personalize it for you. Most Americans know a little about Washington, who was born into slavery in Franklin County, Virginia, and rose to unimaginable prominence for an African-American by the turn of the 20th century. In a very favorable review of our speaker's book, in fact, the Wall Street Journal described Washington this way, quote, a century ago, the most consequential black person in America was a biracial man who had been abandoned by his father and raised by his mother and who favored a non-confrontational style of politics. Hmm. It sounds awfully familiar. I just can't quite put my finger on it. Well, by the middle of the 20th century, however, Washington's star had dimmed and he had fallen out of favor with historians. Now, in a compelling new account, our speaker has recreated the broad context in which Booker T. Washington worked to overcome past exploitation and present discrimination. Although Washington has often been disparaged, especially since the 1960s, this new book details the positive power of his vision to invoke hope and optimism. Dr. Norell reinstates this extraordinary historical figure to the pantheon of African-American leaders. Robert J. Norell received his Ph.D. at the University of Virginia and teaches history across the mountains at the University of Tennessee. He's written a number of books on Southern history and American race relations in addition to his biography of Washington. These include The House That I Live In, Race in the American Century, and Reaping the Whirlwind, the Civil Rights Movement in Tuskegee. Dr. Norell is certainly no stranger to the VHS. He's been here several times to help with various educational programs that we've presented. So please join with me in welcoming Dr. Robert J. Norell, who will speak to us on his new book, Up From History, The Life of Booker T. Washington. It's really a great pleasure to, to be back here, and it's a great pleasure, of course, to be in the room that is named for Charlie Bryan, my old, old friend and a, and a Tennessean. I knew him when he was in Knoxville 25 years ago, uh, and certainly Charlie has been the most successful public historian and museum director in the country, and uh, this institution, which had a great history before he got here, has certainly uh, <clears throat> benefited uh, from Charlie's great work, and I'm sure... Uh, I can see that the institution is, is in, in good hands today. Uh, in my view, historians have been unfair to Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, the Tuskegeean's longstanding rival for leadership among blacks, survived Washington for nearly a half century and shaped the memory of his avowed enemy. Du Bois criticized Washington first in The Souls of Black Folk in 1903, he said Washington excused the South's discrimination and blamed the poor black man himself for his own predicament. Du Bois blamed Washington for segregation, for disfranchisement, and for many other ills uh, related to blacks uh, in the South. Over the course of years of research on, on race in the South and on Tuskegee in particular, I developed a desire uh, to set the record straight on what I believe is an injustice in American historical memory. What I found in my research 
was something different from Du Bois and the historians who followed him. Washington made public protests against discrimination on railroads, against lynching, against unfair voting qualifications. Uh, he protested discriminatory funding and education, segregated housing legislation, uh, and discrimination by labor unions. He constantly raised money for black institutions, both primary and secondary schools, uh, at a time when public education was being beggared for, um, for blacks in the South. He arranged and helped finance lawsuits challenging disfranchisement, jury discrimination, and peonage, though he did all of this secretly because it was too dangerous for a black fellow in Alabama at the turn of the 20th century to be an open advocate uh, for undoing the Jim Crow system. In fact, he did earlier what the NAACP would successfully do in the years after Booker Washington died. They protested, of course, against Jim Crow laws, lynching, peonage, and, and the NAACP, of course, would sue to get the right to vote and to equalize education. <clears throat> I believe that, uh, uh, that the impulse to place turn of the century, turn of the 20th century race relations in a protest versus accommodation dichotomy, which is what has happened in, since the 1960s, was the creation of, of a false opposite, much to the detriment of Booker Washington's historical uh, <clears throat> reputation. The distortion of Washington contributed, I think, to, uh, to an, uh, a significant narrowing of the limits that Americans have put on black aspirations and accomplishments. In the 1960s, any understanding of the role of black leadership was cast in the context of Martin Luther King Jr.'s leadership, which suggested that African Americans can only arise in American life uh, with direct action protest against the political order. Booker Washington's emphasis on education, uh, educational, moral, and economic development became a lost artifact for most Americans, thinking about how to integrate minorities and any other disadvantaged group in, uh, in American life. Washington put a premium on finding consensus and empathizing with other groups and by his example, encourage dominant groups to do the same, that is, to try to understand and be empathetic to those uh, less fortunate. He cautioned that when a people protest constantly about their mistreatment, they soon get the reputation as complainers, and others stop listening to their grievances. Blacks, he said, needed the reputation of being hardworking, intelligent, and patriotic, and not of being aggrieved. And of course, he, he knew from his own experience here in Virginia and, and in Alabama that that's exactly what black people were for the most part, hardworking, intelligent, and patriotic. The main lesson that people around the world took from Booker Washington, that is, people around the world read up from slavery uh, as the, one of the primary texts to come out of the United States in, in Washington's lifetime, they understood, but too few Americans remember today, the lesson that hope and optimism are crucial ingredients in overcoming obstacles of past exploitation and present discrimination. And yet that was the fundamental purpose, I believe, of Booker Washington. In his own time, Washington's abilities were widely appreciated. The most powerful men in the country shared their thoughts with him, and at least five U.S. presidents sought his opinions. The richest men in America... Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan admired his ability, which was common with their own, 
to build a great inter enterprise, in Washington's case, of course, Tuskegee Institute, and to integrate the aspirations of his beleaguered people into the booming American industrial economy. Mark Twain, William Dean Howells, and other noted men of letters admired Washington's writing. People from all over the world, as I said, had read up from slavery and had taken, taken from it instruction and inspiration uh, about how to rise and improve their own lives. The trustees of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia sought his, his uh, presence in their midst at their, their big celebrations and commencements, and both Harvard and Dartmouth College gave him honorary degrees. But his appeal, Washington's appeal, uh, <clears throat> went far beyond the rich, the powerful, and the educated. Average Americans, black and white, flocked to hear Washington's inspirational and humorous speeches. Booker Washington's audiences usually remembered his aphorisms. For example, quote, it's a mighty hard thing to make a good Christian of a hungry man. <clears throat> he offered ethical maxims that he applied to race relations. Quote, I would put... I would permit no man to drag my soul by making me hate him. That's what he said to blacks. What he said to white people was, one man can't keep another man in the ditch without being in the ditch himself. He often cast his materialist emphasis on, his emphasis on economic improvement in the statement, quote, no one cares much for a man with an empty hand, an empty pocket, and an empty head, no matter what color he is. He frequently said, Washington did, and, and this, is, this is his sort of coaching Southerners, black and white, to improve in their, their relationships, their human relationships in their community. He said, <clears throat> in every community in the South, quote, every Negro has a white friend and every white a Negro friend. Um, <clears throat> about blacks, he claimed, especially to big audiences of whites, that, quote, in slavery or freedom, we have always been loyal to the stars and stripes. Blacks are patriotic. And he said, quote, no schoolhouse has been opened for us that has not been filled. Black people want education and take advantage of it. Booker's listeners always relished his humor. One prominent white Southerner thought Booker's was the best sense of humor used most effectively of any man he ever saw. Quote, he could not only tell a good joke well, but tell what was only the shadow of a joke so well that his audience would be shaken with laughter. The story might be a simple one. The effectiveness lay in the artistic way of telling it. <clears throat> Much of his, is, of his humor was a kind of racial humor uh, <clears throat> that uh, poked fun or made ironic criticism of whites. On the social conditions, he said, social conditions, racial conditions in the South, quote, the colored men down South are very fond of an old song entitled, Give Me Jesus and You Take All the Rest, and the white people have taken him at his word. <clears throat> About... About Black's reputation for not being very smart at times, he told the story of a white man who asked a black fellow to loan him three cents to take a ferry across the river. The old black fellow refused and said, Boss, I know you got more sense than I have, <clears throat> but it seems to me a man what's got no money is as well off on one side of the river as the other one. <clears throat> <clears throat> And finally, he, tells, he told the story, there's a lot of discussion about immigration and, and 
Uh, some of the white supremacists in the South came up with the idea that if they could just bring a lot more white European immigrants into the South, that they would solve a lot of the racial problems in the South by just creating a, a bigger white majority. And he told a story about the uh, landlord who went to one of his uh, black sharecroppers and asked what he th- asked the black sharecropper what he thought about a lot of new white immigrants coming in from Italy and so forth. <clears throat> and the black fellow, according to Booker, thought about it a minute and said, finally said, boss, I believe we're sporting about all the white folks we can now. <laughs> so he would tell stories that were, you know, were, uh, that had black characters delivering uh, a message that was, was really quite astute and honest and clear. Each year, Washington spoke scores of times all over the United States, often to thousands of people at a time, about how African Americans could and would rise in American society and how race relations uh, uh, were becoming more peaceful. His prophecies about a better future for his race and peace among all Americans won him wide popularity among blacks who gathered, as I said, in huge throngs to hear him talk, and they did more than just listen each year, starting about 1901, hundreds of African-American mothers named their baby boys Booker T. Whites who went skeptically to hear the famous Negro usually left amazed and often persuaded by his message of hope and of peaceful reconciliation. Washington believed that confrontation with powerful and bigoted whites was futile, even suicidal, And he thus turned to public relations, to philanthropy, and to politics in his struggle for black equality, starting with his Atlanta Exposition speech in 1895, continuing till he died in 1915, Washington's most fundamental purpose, I believe, was to reverse the general presumption among most white Americans that blacks were regressing in in freedom, were regressing morally and intellectually into some dangerous state. A second basic goal of Washington's was to stop the growing hostility of whites toward any black education. In Washington's view, of course, education was the view to raising their status, and yet in the period between 1890 and about 1910, uh, there was intensifying uh, uh, opposition among whites to public funding of any black education. Washington saw this and worked very... uh, uh, constantly to, 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 to thwart it, and ultimately did do, I believe. My book explores several uh, neglected contexts of Booker Washington's life. The most uh, influential works about Washington have portrayed him as the favorite of white supremacists in the South, when in fact such Southern politicians as Ben Tillman of South Carolina, James Vardaman of Mississippi, Tom Heflin of Alabama, and some Virginians, uh, uh, I, could, I could mention as well, denounced him viciously for years. Uh, <clears throat> the meager and declining public support for black education I offer as the context for explaining why Washington turned to Andrew Carnegie and John T. Rockefeller for help, and that effort, of course, has been much maligned by historians uh, as, as Washington's currying the favor of the robber barons. As print culture evolved in the 1890s, that is, as newspapers and and magazines and uh, uh, sheet music became much more visual in their renderings, 
we saw the emergence in, of, of uh, images, increasingly uh, pernicious images of blacks as lazy and immoral uh, uh, and violent. Uh, Washington believed that these images had to be challenged before opportunity for blacks and equality for blacks could be realized. And so he constantly engaged in public relations activities, sending press releases to newspapers about black achievement and black progress and, and good black citizenship to try to emphasize uh, <clears throat> the, the, you know, to try to, to, to present a, uh, a, a contrary point of view. In Washington's own work of writing, he wrote constantly and spoke constantly, uh, were, of course, all aimed at trying to revise the public's image of African Americans, which was, which was declining so much in, during the, uh, at least the first half of his leadership. <clears throat> Washington died in 1915. He was remembered mostly as a hero for the next two generations. And then in the 1960s, civil rights activists called, began to call Washington an Uncle Tom who sold out his people to secure personal power and delay the coming of black freedom. They lost almost altogether the similarities between Washington and Martin Luther King, Jr., of course, who becomes the paradigm of black leadership at that, at that moment. Washington and, and, and King in, indeed shared many things, including a commitment to shape the way whites perceived racial character in order to elicit fairer treatment for blacks. Each warned of the danger of hate and the power of love and reconciliation. Just as Washington portrayed blacks as decent and moral, Martin King presented blacks as loving and, and unworthy of the terrible treatment that Southern segregationists visited on them. If King was harder on whites than Washington, he preached that the worst of whites <clears throat> could be redeemed. Both King and Washington appealed to democratic values as the imperative for reforming race relations, and they both prophesied that equality would come. The difference was that King pricked the American conscience when the time was right for change, while Booker, in a much harsher time, could not defeat the overwhelming white supremacist power in the South at the turn of the 20th century. Today, I think we can see, of course, as, as Paul suggested, interesting similarities between Washington and President Obama. Uh, <clears throat> both of them came, uh, captured the nation's attention with a single speech. We know about Obama, the 2004 Democratic Convention, and Washington at the Cotton States Exposition in 1895. Each has demonstrated a remarkable talent for oratory, and each professed great faith in America as the land of opportunity, and each of them uh, knows uh, that the essence of political and moral leadership is to persuade Americans to think the same way you do. Both Booker and Barack wrote powerful autobiographies that re reveal the large obstacles that they had overcome in their lives, and they each offered themselves as models for how people born in a relatively low station in life can rise by developing their own character and intelligence. The idealism underlying Obama's work in Chicago neighborhoods is related in Dreams from My Father, which I highly recommend as a to you, uh, echoes Washington's descriptions of his work in founding Tuskegee in uh, Up From Slavery. Despite the great successes of each man, both autobiographies reflect a humility about their rise, giving credit to those who helped and noting 
their own failures along the way. Like Barack, Booker was a product, as Paul said, of an interracial union, the son of a white man who did not acknowledge him, and a mother who loved him wholeheartedly and nurtured him to be a smart and psychologically peaceful man. <clears throat> in response to the racist invective that, is, that was often fired at him, uh, Washington, as I said, often uh, responded, let no man pull you so low as to make you hate him. Both Washington and Obama were neglected by fathers, but managed to mature into reasonable, fair-minded, and optimistic adults. Each has or had the confidence and temper to listen carefully to others and even those who oppose him, and then to move forward with purpose and confidence. And I think, obviously, people, many people are seeing this in the, in the president. I think if we look back, we will, uh, we will see a, a, a pattern of of this you know, commitment to conciliation and confidence. Now, let me, let me make a few comments uh, about the, the process or the art of writing biography. This is the first one that I have written, though I've tried several other kinds of historical writing. Uh, I came to this, of course, as you can see, from a, a desire to set the historical record straight, uh, I had tried to correct the unfairness toward Washington in an earlier book, in an article, uh, and then a chapter elsewhere. But in each case, little attention was paid, and I finally decided that perhaps the, the final recourse was to write a full-fledged, full-fledged and intensely revisionist biography. I think that I've got a better and more empathetic understanding of the context of Booker Washington's life that have the main interpreters of his life, at least since the 1960s, that's Du Bois and C. Van Woodward and Lewis Harlan. Essentially, I, <clears throat> I think I can give the curious and open-minded reader a fuller understanding of Booker Washington's world than these other admittedly brilliant men have done up until this point. I don't, however, make a, a claim to objectivity. It's been said uh, that it is impossible to uh, portray another human being without displaying oneself. And I came to this with a full freight of cultural baggage that made me sympathetic to Booker Washington, perhaps in a way that these other fellows were not. I have a faith in the Protestant ethic, the Judeo-Christian tradition, and American democratic values. I, have a, I appreciate the benefits of capitalism, and I think I have an instinctive understanding of the white supremacist power that Booker Washington encountered and the culture of white nationalism that sets such narrow limits on how much change Booker Washington could force in the thinking of Americans of his day. I grew up in Alabama among white supremacists, and while I knew virtually nothing about Booker Washington until I went to Tuskegee to write a dissertation about it for the first time in 1977, I had absorbed in my earlier life an understanding of the hard realities that limited the ability of any black man to seek equality in the South and can only imagine how much harder it had been two, two generations before. I was prepared to know what Washington was up against. 
the image of Washington that I confronted in the historical writing and when I was in graduate school in, in Charlottesville in the 1970s was that of the sneaky wizard of Tuskegee, a man who either hid his true personality or, in fact, may not have had any fixed personality, as Lewis Harlan suggested. Harlan used the metaphor in a, of an onion for Washington's personality, suggesting that when the biographer ultimately peeled away the last contrived image that Washington had created, there would be no person there at all. Perhaps I've fallen victim to what has been called the myth of the biography, the belief that biography can deliver the essential person and that there's a core personality, a real me, which we will find if we uh, dig deep and long enough. Biographers make decisions about what matters with regard to their subjects. We make decisions, the literary critic Paula Backscheider has said, about people and their places in history. We characterize a nation and we transmit its values through our character and we uphold certain cultural norms. I confess, I've done all those things. Biographers decide what kind of person we are writing about and assign motive over and over, and we construct a shape and a trajectory for the life out of actions and our surmises, our surmises about decisions and motives. It seems, I think, that biographers can't really be objective. We feel compelled to assign motive, but in truth we can hardly imagine all the motives that could have been in play in a given life. Biographers essentially choose whether individual, individuals make a, an individual makes his own life or the society constructs his life for him. Uh, I have clearly um, come down on the side that Booker Washington did, in fact, construct his life. <clears throat> um, all biographers, I should say, also use um, psychological context concepts, uh, many of them Freudian, whether we are conscious of it or not, I'd written most of this before I realized I'd done all of that. Uh, <clears throat> but let me confess that I have done. And my, my uh, um, psychological evaluation of Booker Washington's is entirely different from Lewis Harlan's or Van Woodward's or W.B. Du Bois's. I saw in Washington a real and fixed personality, that of a careful, confident, extraordinarily well-informed man with a long-term strategy for achieving black equality in America, and I have attempted to reconstruct that context for him. And I decided that Booker Washington's efforts were far more heroic and shrewd than history has remembered them. For blacks in our time, in his own time, he achieved the prophetic purposes of fostering hope, helping his people believe that the future would be better, and he's persuaded a lot of whites that the world, the ugly world of race in, in, in the turn of the 20th century could be, could be changed and made better. Thank you very much, and let's see if there are some questions.